So we are uh, in the second week of our study in the book of Acts. And uh, one of the things that we discussed last week is that the book of Acts tells a really big story. It tells the story of how the community based on the life and teachings of Jesus came into being. And it also tells a story of how a people are sitting in a room several thousand years later worshiping this same Jesus. It's a really big story. So even though it's a story of the community, the main character of the story is not really the community. The main character of the story that Acts is trying to tell is God, who is the, the author and guiding force behind all that is happening. He is making things happen in the world. He is moving The main subject of the story is Jesus. If God is writing the music, then Jesus is the lyrics to the song. Jesus as the embodiment of the love of God, the Lamb of God who was slain for the world, the risen Lord who gives us victory. He is what the movement is all about. He must go out into the world. But how will he do that? He will do that through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the engine that makes this movement run and go forward. It is the the power of God manifest in the lives of those who believe in and follow Jesus. But someone has to go. Someone has to be the mouthpiece, and this is where the apostles come in. They are the ones who knew and experienced Jesus firsthand. They had heard his teachings. They saw the miracles. They experienced him as the risen Lord. And as those who knew and believed in Jesus, it was their responsibility to take Jesus to a world that was lost without him. But they were given in explicit instructions that they were not to make a move until God sent to them what he had promised, which is the Holy Spirit. When last we left them, they had gone to an upstairs room to pray and wait for what God had promised them, just like Jesus had told them to do. So as we said, they they were in this room, and they're praying, and they did not know when God was going to make this thing happen. They didn't know uh, what it was going to look like. Uh, They didn't really know what they were waiting for, but they knew that they could not move forward without this gift from God. So have you ever thought about what they prayed for during that time? You ever just kind of wondered? There are three things I want to suggest about this time of prayer and why this time of prayer leading up to the coming of the Holy Spirit is important. Number one, it clearly states that the next move is up to God. You know, sometimes in our lives, we pray for God to show us what to do, and then we go ahead and do what we were going to do anyway. You know what I'm saying? Or we pray for God to bless the decision we've already made. They could run into the streets and start telling people all about Jesus, but remember that some of the people in the streets that they would have talked to were those who actually helped to kill Jesus. They had been told they were going to wait for God to move, so they did that. They went up and they waited for God to make his move. This time of prayer, I I would imagine, is also a time of boldness before God. They were going before God, asking him to give them what he has promised to them. 
Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit was going to come and empower them. They needed to wait for God. So I would imagine that during this time, they are praying to God, God, send your spirit. God, give us what you have promised us so that we can go and do what you want us to do. And it, it shows confidence in the faithfulness of God to, to be true to the promises that he has made, that he will be true to who he is. And it's also an act of humility, which I think is important. Because you have to remember these people are going to go out as the face, the, the head of Christianity. And I think it's important for them to spend this time in the room saying, God, you are the only one who can give us what we need. You are the only one who can make this work. So they gathered and they waited. What must that have felt like? I'm not always a very patient person. And if I were told that God was going to give me some amazing thing, I would kind of want it to happen, right? Uh, this is one of my favorite pictures of Zeke from when he was a kid. He was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he was four years old at the time that this picture was taken, and some of our friends, Riley and Holly, were coming over for dinner that night. And Zeke was really excited about the fact that they were coming over, so he kept asking us when they were going to get there. So we told him over and over again. But he was four, and four-year-olds are not really good at telling time. Um, so we told him that, you know, they would get there sometime between five and six. Uh, they were also always late. So, you know, poor Zeke was just stuck waiting. So at 4.53 and 19 seconds... I laid a pillow down in front of the front door so that Zeke could just watch for them to get here. And this is how he sat for quite a while. He did change positions uh, at least once that I know of uh, to get a little bit more comfortable in waiting for them to get there. This to a degree, I know, oh, look at him. He's so cute. Zeke, you're so cute. To a degree, this is how I imagine the apostles and company waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Sitting by the door, staring outside. Okay. What about now? Is it time yet? But when the Holy Spirit did show up, there was no mistaking it as being the presence of God. The payoff was perfect. From Acts chapter 2, Verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia. I should have practiced these names, people. You need to remind me to do this. Egypt and part of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. What was the verse that we read at the beginning? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And you might wonder, well, what is the difference between having God do something and having us do something? Well, this story encapsulates the difference pretty well. One of the first things we recognize, we need to recognize about this story is that the writer is trying to bring to reality something of the truth about the church, something that cannot be known except through this story. So we are listening to the account of something strange, something uh, beyond the bounds of imagination, miraculous, inscrutable, an, orange, an origin which, as far as Luke is concerned, was the only way that you could even explain the way that this church began to exist. It was dawn on the day of Pentecost. So let's start looking at what God has done and how he's done it and why all of this works so well. In the Old Testament, the customary name for the observance of Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. It is regarded as the second of three obligatory observances coming between Passover and Tabernacles. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, it is called the Feast of Harvest, or the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. In Exodus 34, 22, the Feast of Weeks is further defined as the first fruits of wheat harvest. These phrases indicate that the Feast of Weeks was originally an agricultural event. But I want you to keep in the back of your mind that this is the day. This is what they are celebrating this day. The first fruits of what God has given them and blessed them with. <laughs> That's funny that it happened on that day. What happened on this day of Pentecost is what theologian William Willimon describes as an eruption of sounds from heaven and of wind, that things are coming loose and breaking open. God, and more specifically, his spirit are arriving on the scene. Now here's something that you may have caught or may not have caught. The apostles and all that are with them, they are still in the upper room. They're still in this house when there is this rush of wind, this huge sound, and then tongues of fire appear before, uh, above their heads. And then they all started speaking in different tongues. Now, this is not tongues as in, uh, as you see late in later examples of, of a spirit language, we find out that these tongues are real languages, that they are speaking real foreign languages that the crowd notes none of them really have the business of knowing. And it is such, they're inside the house, and it is such an event 
inside this house that what happens? It draws people to it. Out on the street, a crowd began to gather. And here's another funny happenstance. It wasn't just any crowd. It was a crowd of Jews from every devout nation who spoke, just by chance, all these different languages. And this is important because they heard the sound and were drawn toward it. And then when they came to find out what this sound was, they each heard their own language being spoken. This leads to confusion on the part of this crowd because they couldn't figure out what was going on. They were amazed and perplexed. And and some wanted to figure out what was actually going on. Like, there seems to be something miraculous that's happening here. Others explain this gift of God in terms that they can easily understand. Oh, there's nothing miraculous happening here. These people are drunk. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you get drunk, you can apparently begin to fluently speak foreign languages. Just randomly. It's called the Drunketta Stone. Thank you. I, I debated about whether putting that one in or not, but... But here's something that's so cool about this. The first gift of the Spirit that was given was the gift of speech. The gift to be able to speak in different languages. So we are hearing a story about the eruption of the Spirit into the community and the first fruit of the Spirit is the gift of being able to proclaim something in words that they didn't have before. The gospel must go out, and the Spirit's first gift of proclamation sets the gospel into motion. The Spirit is the power to witness the engine that drives the church, the gospel, into all the world. And the miracle of this is that those who had no tongue to speak the truth about the mighty works of God now are able to step up and preach and proclaim to the world just who Jesus is. This is very different than how we have sometimes interpreted the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have sometimes uh, interpreted the gifts of the Holy Spirit as being a very private, internal thing. The Spirit is empowering me in this way, or building my relationship with God in this way, or helping me to become this in this way. But Luke goes to great pains to insist that this outpouring of the Spirit is not about the person who's receiving it. And it's not, even at this point, about their relationship with God. Everything is by wind and fire and loud talk and confusion and public debate. The the, the Spirit is the power which enables the church to go public with its good news, to attract a crowd, and to have something to say which is worth them hearing. So, this crowd has gathered. 
people are speaking in different languages. It's pandemonium, dogs and cats living together. Who is going to step up and proclaim the word of God? Come on in. No, come on in. Who's going to step up and proclaim the word of God? Well, we know the story because we've read it and we've kind of, you know, we're used to this. So we say, well, it's Peter, of course. Peter is the one, and because Peter is the one who always did things. So Peter is the one who's going to step up and is going to proclaim the word of God. But let's step back from that for a second because Peter actually isn't the most obvious choice. Do you know who the most obvious choice probably would have been? John. Do you know why? Because John never left Jesus. But Peter betrayed Jesus when the going got rough. He denied even knowing Jesus in an effort to save his own skin. He gave up on just all of it. And, and, and yes, uh, Peter was reinstated by Jesus in the book of John, but in the book of Luke, that exchange doesn't happen. Peter was with the apostles when Jesus appeared to them, but when the book of Acts starts, he still has some ground to make up. Okay, so why would this matter? Does it matter? Uh, Willeman again notes that in Genesis 2-7, the Spirit of God breathed life into dust and created a human being. And he says in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Spirit has breathed life into a once cowardly disciple and created a new man who now has the gift of bold speech. To put it even more simply, here's a guy who was afraid to say who Jesus was, who is now willing to stand up in front of everyone and say who Jesus was. And that strength and power didn't come from him. We've already saw what happened when it has to come from him. It's coming from God. And this, the use of Peter simply reinforces the power of the Spirit to drive the proclamation of the, power of the gospel into the world. The man who would not admit to Jesus is now going to stand up in the power of the Spirit and tell everyone the truth of God. So from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Peter came out of the gates uh, swinging here and confronted the crowd. You are wrong about what is happening. Why did he need to make this statement? Because he needed them to hear what he had to say next. He needed them to understand that the assumptions you're making about what is happening here are wrong. Now here's why they're wrong. He then quoted scripture from the book of Joel. Joel said that in the terrible and wonderful last days, the Spirit of God would be poured out on all people. The Spirit, which in the past had been the possession of the kind of strange and eccentric few would now be offered to all. And this is an important point that Peter needs to make because 
It's an indictment of the crowd. They may know this scripture too, but they miss what the point of it was. That someday the Spirit is going to be poured out on everyone and you need to look for this outpouring of the Spirit. But instead, they explain the outpouring of the Spirit as these people being drunk. And by not having their eyes open to the truth that has been proclaimed all along, they were missing out on what God was doing and what he said he was going to do. This is the premise for Peter's argument. God has said he was going to do this all along. And what you are seeing and experiencing has been God's plan all along. He then boldly told them the truth of things. Fellow Israelites, from verses 22 through 24, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What a statement this is. I mean, it's just, it's huge. And, and here's basically what he is saying. You know who Jesus is. You saw what he did. You heard what he said. He was handed over to who? To you. And with the help of wicked people, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. But there's this, this phrase in here that we can't miss. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What is he still telling them? That even though you did these things and you and wicked people did this, who actually made all this happen? God did. God sent him to this place. God made these events take place. So the Spirit gives Peter the power to proclaim, and that is exactly what this is. It is a proclamation. It is a declaration of, of all that has happened. And, and these were not easy words to say to a group of people who were just recently hostile to Jesus himself. But the truth of who Jesus was and what God was doing had to be told plainly and openly and boldly. And when the people that were there heard this message, that this is what God has been doing all along, you took part in this, and this is who Jesus is, it had a great effect on them. From verses 37 through 41. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 
were added to their number that day. What is the difference between us doing things on our own or doing things with God? This story was not told to prove how good of a speaker Peter was. It was also not told to prove that these people who had gathered there just had ready hearts and wanted to hear what God had to say. We already know they were trying to exclude God from the picture. This story and sermon were told so that there is no doubt that it is the Spirit of God, it is the movement of God that is propelling this thing forward. It is what God has done and what God is doing that is bringing salvation to the world. And what saves these people is, is the story of what has happened. What, is, what has happened is that in Jesus, there is power loose in the world now. The power of God is loose in the world. And if they come to know Jesus, if they come to put themselves, as, as Paul would later say, in Christ, then the power of God will be loose in their own lives. In this account, too, we see that the Spirit not only powers proclamation by the disciples, but it also makes that proclamation powerful and effective. It helps that message, as Jesus said in the book of John, cut through to the heart of where these people are. Because this story that the apostles have to tell and that they're going to tell over and over and over again is a really big story. And this story is going to change people's lives and change the world forever. So what do we learn from this story? I think we learned some important things. The miraculous power of the Spirit is meant to lead to the proclamation of who Jesus is. That is the purpose. Yes, the Spirit does other things in our lives. It, it protects us. It helps us, right? But, but the purpose of the Spirit is to empower us to go out and proclaim to the world who Jesus is. And so if we are trying to put the Spirit into some other container, it's not going to fit. And it's not going to be what it is that God wants it to be. The power of the Spirit is given to empower the disciples to go and proclaim the truth of God, of who Jesus is. The environment that the disciples were in was more hostile of an environment than most of us will ever face. For as much as we have been intimidated when we want to share the gospel, as much as we have been worried about what to say and how to say it and, you know, what if I make them angry or what if I don't say it in the right way or what if I... Whatever environment we might find ourselves in is going to be nothing compared to the fact, compared to this, which is an environment where those who believed in Jesus were speaking directly to those who helped kill Jesus. 
But the difference is that they called on God to be faithful. They waited for his presence. They were filled with his power. And then what did they do? They proclaimed the gospel. And when you think about it in those terms, the only thing they really did was follow the directions of God and the prompting of the Spirit. They didn't really do anything other than sit and wait and pray. Fingers crossed. Let's hope this goes okay. So perhaps one of the most important things for us to really grasp hold of is this. Within the church that was started so long ago and within the church now, it is God who makes all things happen. It is not me. And it's not you. It's not Megan. It's not Rand. It's not, it's not us that makes things happen. It is God. It is his spirit which gives his disciples the power and the words to say what needs to be said. So the one job of the disciple is to step up and proclaim the truth. People need to hear the gospel and be given the opportunity to respond to it. It is not up to the disciples to determine how they respond and if the word should go out to them. That is out of their hands completely. It is up to them to simply make sure that people have the chance to hear it and to not miss an opportunity to proclaim the truth of Jesus. So maybe in our desire to share Jesus with others, maybe there are some questions that we need to start asking ourselves. Have we called on God for the power that he has promised to those who are his? Have we waited in anticipation of God's empowerment? Have we been bold enough to proclaim knowing that the proclamation of the truth is our job? Those are hard questions. But... I have really, really good news for you. If the Lord builds the house, then the builders have not labored in vain. And if the Lord watches over the city, then the guards do not stand and watch in vain. If God is with you, then God will succeed. Oh, isn't that a different statement? If God is with you, then God will succeed. Because guess what? It's not about you succeeding. It's not about me saying the right things at the right time to the right person. It is about God moving into the world. It is about God succeeding. Amen? As we take communion together this morning, 
we are participating in a powerful moment. A moment that Jesus himself set forward for us. Where he calls us to remember his body that was sacrificed, his blood that was shed. Where he calls us to live to live in the reality of that. To know that Jesus died for us to give us salvation, to give us freedom, victory over death and the sin that would keep us from God. Because ultimately this is what God wants and the point of telling the story at all is so that humanity can be brought back to him and have life with him. And stop trying to live on their own, but live the God-empowered life that he wants us to live. So when we take communion, we are celebrating that, church. We are celebrating the fact that God is giving us the opportunity to live a God-empowered, spirit-filled life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that Jesus makes all of this possible. We are grateful that you, in your great love and wisdom, chose to send him to us, knowing our need. God, we are grateful for your spirit, which lives inside of us and gives us the power and the strength to proclaim that we are a part of this story and that others can be too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.